0: Howdy. This is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. On this current episode, my guest is Andrew Taggart. We're going to start our conversation around his Medium post, The Uninvited Confession, The New Confessional. Great to have you here, Andrew. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, Jim. Ah, yeah, I love these uh, conversations. We start with a starting point on, in the current series, and then we go where it goes. It'll be fun to see where it goes. Uh, Andrew calls himself a practical philosopher, a non-dualist, and an entrepreneur. Now, I wonder, what the hell is a non-dualist? I was in one <laughs> duel in my life, and I survived uh, to live, to, to, talk, to uh, see the other day, so I suspect that's not it. Uh, and I'm also definitely a non-dualist in the Cartesian sense, and I suspect that's not it either. Uh, in, in your lingo, what's a non-dualist?
1: Oh, well, we're, getting, we're going pretty deep early. <laughs> so, a non-dualist refers to a number of Eastern traditions, such as Zen Buddhism and Advaita Vendata that suggests essentially that there is one reality and we are that one reality. So we, so, so we have begun in the right place.
0: All right, that's a good place. I guess it's a good place to be. still sounds a little uh, mystical to me, but we'll, we'll dig into it a little bit. Uh, a little bit more about uh, Andrew, and this is from his website. I ask and seek to answer the most basic questions of human existence with others around the world. 2009, I finished a Ph.D., left the academic life, and moved to New York City because I thought the most basic question of how to live needed to be brought back into our everyday lives. Each day, I philosophize with executive entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, those living in Silicon Valley and Wall Street, and Scandinavia and South America, about the nature of the good life. Well, wow, that's damn interesting. You know what, who that reminded me of? Hmm, who Socrates? <laughs>
1: yeah, he didn't speak with venture capitalists,
0: but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, he, he did. But he just told him to, uh, you know, get, th- get thyself to a nunnery or whatever, right? I hope I hope you don't end up like him, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it sounds like an interesting uh, life choice to be a uh, worldly philosopher.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's precisely what philosophy used to be. And so you're you're right to mention socrates there are other figures we know of in the philosophical tradition all of whom thought that the most fundamental questions need to be asked with other people with whom one was living in order to help them clarify their basic understandings of what a good life is or what reality is or why we're here so yeah, it, indeed yeah so it's it's only i saw a tweet you had <laughs> some months back about your mis, your misgivings about I think it was analytic philosophy in particular, and I have similar misgivings. So I don't think that I don't think that a, a current understanding of philosophy, as it's been institutionalized, is a very accurate conception of what the philosophical life was and really ought to be.
0: Yeah, in fact, I you know I quote. Like paraphrase Wittgenstein, original early Wittgenstein, I basically say uh, modern philosophy is a long journey to nowhere, right?
1: And, uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's, I uh, like that. I'm sure there are some exceptions to that rule, but generally speaking, um, both continental and anal- analytic philosophy—that is, those undertaken in Europe and in Anglo America—both seem to be involved in the kinds of discourses that don't often appeal to ordinary persons who are really grappling with meaning, questions of meaning and purpose and value. That's the, the great trouble with the institutionalization of philosophy as it comes about in the 18th and 19th centuries in Germany and, and afterward in the United States. So suffice it to say, what I'm up to is a fairly obvious thing to do to it. We need to ask those questions and we need to answer them. Particularly at this moment in time. And philosophy has just been one of the deepest activities involved in those kinds of inquiries.
0: Yep, and even when I uh, find it goes nowhere, I nonetheless find it interesting, right? So uh, in the last few weeks, I've been digging into Heidegger, oh, wow. for instance. Yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, you know, Heidegger is a little different because he also uh, talks about having to ground it in everyday life and all, but he goes off to the wild blue yonder and all kinds of crazy-ass shit. But nonetheless, it's stimulating, uh, stimulating to think about. And so I do encourage people to read modern philosophy, uh, even if at the end of the day you believe it's uh, – you know, uh, fireworks and jerking off basic, uh, basically, because uh, it will make you think a little bit, and that's not a bad thing
1: no, there there <laughs> I'm enjoying this conversation already, <laughs> but um, and there are philosophers who might be able to help you do more than jerk off. <laughs> so there are people like Pierre Pieau who died in 2010, and he did argue very convincingly, I think that ancient Greek philosophy was involved with. questions of the good life. Uh, There are others like him as well. Even J.M. Cooper wrote a wonderful book called The Pursuits of Wisdom, where he discusses Epicureanism and Stoicism and Platonism and so on in ways that I think would be very helpful for people living today.
0: Yeah, and certainly there's been this very interesting uh, neo-stoicism that's uh, uh, arisen of late. I happen to know a couple of the figures in that field. Doesn't appeal to me in the slightest, but, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, I can see why uh, people would find it helpful, and uh, and it seems to be a good thing, not a bad thing, just a matter of taste that it doesn't appeal to my particular personality. Uh, I'm much more of an Epicurean than I am a stoicist, I would say. Oh, how so? (laughs) uh yeah i like the good life mm, right mm. uh you know I don't feel like uh you know sort of being quiet and modest or whatever right? i like to get out there and knock it around and uh you yeah, know do a little this and that and uh you know have good time with my friends and uh uh you know and think deeply right so mm. uh so yeah you know, sort of i would call it stylistically uh, i'm more of an epicurean than a than a stoic uh, though Uh, you know, philosophically, I can find useful things in both traditions. And again, those who listen to the show know that my one watch word, which I apply to everything, the lens is, is it useful, Mm. right? I don't believe anything a priori. I tend to be skeptical of ideologies and uh, certainly revealed religions, but I can use the lens: is it useful on almost anything?
1: Yeah, well, if, if we're talking about philosophy as the loving pursuit of wisdom or loving pursuit of living a wise life, then I would argue that it couldn't be any more useful. Exactly. It's just that we we forgot the more basic or all-encompassing use of the word usefulness. I I think that's
0: a good point. Well, let's dive into the uh, focus of this uh, Currents episode, which is the uh, Medium article you wrote, The Uninvited Confession, The New Confessional. Yeah. And I'm going to uh, start off with a brief quote. Uh, Over the years, and most especially during the coronavirus, I've noticed an unsettling trend. People I barely know or do not know at all will send me letters written in the mode of a confession, completely out of the blue. The writer will not ask after me or mine, or at least he or she in any way include me in what time was used to be termed a conversation. Instead, the writer spills spilling guts onto the page will speak at me. Uh, you know and and then you go on to talk about how this uh, is uh in your view very much related to uh i guess you might call it the uh psychotherapeutic culture yeah. uh what do you what do you have to say about that
1: yeah it's a it's it's a it's a big it's a very important and big question i, I want to say something first by way of by by way of background so um in two thousand and seventeen uh, I began to notice that people were talking at great length about work. And I think you've read a couple of my pieces of, about the nature of work today. And so I, I, I did have a kind of gestalt shift or um, a moment where things clicked. And I began to realize that Joseph Pieper, who was a German philosopher writing in the 20th century, was on to something when he spoke about the nature of total work and the ways in which human beings become workers. So I would call that the homo economicus conception. Now, uh, more recently, I've been thinking about homo psychologicus, that is, how it was possible also for human beings to come to think of themselves in deeply psychological terms. So that's more or less the the backdrop to this particular piece. Um, I mean, there are a number of sociologists writing in the 20th century Many of whom have begun to point to this particular topic I'm discussing today. So Philip Reef wrote a book in 1965 or so called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And he began to point to the fact that a lot of people he noticed were starting to become interested in feeling good. That was the good life, you might say, was the life of feeling good. But more recently, I think what's really quite astonishing about um, homo psychologicus, is that we're, we're seeing a ramping up of this interior psychological dispensation or dimension in life. And uh, so I'll, I'll just give you one particular understanding. So there's something I call secular spirituality <laughs> that refers to going north of what Ken Wilber calls the flatland of our current culture, but it's well south of transcendence. So in that particular no man's land, you begin to notice people talking at great length about their interior states, about certain sets of experiences they have about certain growth experiences and things like that. So I'm beginning to pick up on the ways in which there is no such idea as a, 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 there's a very little sense of a common good or publicness, and there's a great turn toward interior states that are then going to be uh, Discussed at a considerable length on Instagram via Twitter and for me via email.
0: Mm, yeah, I, I certainly resonate with what you're talking about there. I grew up in a working, working class area where. Uh, Nobody went to therapy, right? Unless mm-hmm. they were by court order or, you know, a, a case of a real tragedy. I remember a mother whose young child died in a swimming accident, drowned, right? I mm-hmm. think she went to therapy. Yeah. But therapy was not a thing, right? And I went mm-hmm. to college uh, in Massachusetts, in Cambridge. And then I uh, and they also then moved back to Cambridge later and uh, started two companies. And I came to realize there was this huge industry of what I came to call recreational therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I uh, go, what the fuck, right? What are all these people doing? And I will uh, say to this day, it has kind of astounded me. And it's not, not something I've ever really, uh, you know, got involved with. Uh, it just uh, struck, struck me as an oddity of the modern world. But as you point out, the, the discourse of, uh, what I, you might call the depth psychologist in some ways permeates our culture, especially our, certainly our literary fiction, a lot of our movies, a lot of our sitcoms, et cetera. Uh, it really is, uh, you know, quite a fundamental part of the mimetic landscape. In fact, I had a really interesting uh, cognitive science on uh, scientists scientist on the show couple of weeks ago, EP75. Uh, it was Nick Chater, mm-hmm. whose book, The Mind is Flat, uh, does a really interesting scientific demolition of uh, depth psychology and the idea that there really is some true depth uh, to our personalities and that, you know, in rather what we're doing is re- reacting to a combination of perception and memory and confabulation, confabulating on the fly, right? Mm-hmm. Seems relatively convincing, and certainly uh, uh, we know that uh, Freud and you know his uh, uh, heirs and assigns like Jung, et cetera, uh, aren't really scientists. Uh, I would call them closer to literists, you know, literary people. Sure. You know, they write some write some things that we resonate with, right? That kind of strike us as yes, that's about what being a human's like in some sense. But when we're actually put to the scientific test, not so much. So anyway, yeah, that's my reaction to this uh, psychotherapeutic culture. And uh, uh, yeah, it is, uh, it is a really big part of the current landscape. Yeah,
1: so maybe I can provide a different way of contextualizing why I actually care about it now. Uh, I think two things tend to be lost or foreclosed at this moment in time. One is a deep conception of the vita, contemplati- vita contemplativa, that is the contemplative life. And this was, the life of contemplation was extraordinarily important in ancient Greece going all the way through the end of the early modern period in Europe. It was really holding sway. Uh, the, the, The life of contemplating ultimate goods or ultimate things was of fundamental importance. And that's not even remotely part of the current landscape that we see today. But I think it's a fundamental part of what it is to be human. So that's the first one I see that has been gone by the wayside, largely so. The second one, though, is was really pointed out by a number of sociologists throughout the course of the 20th century, and they were, they were trying to draw our attention to the fact that notions of the common good, to use Aristotelian to mystic language, were dissolving. And so if we ask ourselves, what has happened instead to, to fill this void, the void of the lack of contemplation and the, the lack of genuine public spiritedness, a genuine sense of the common good, I would suggest this very strange notion of interiority, the long uh, micro inspection of certain interior states that will then be put in the form of stories and shared as if they were open secrets. They're open secrets on Instagram, but then they become slightly more secretive when it's actually in the confessional mode in a one-on-one sense. So I can try to to ground what I'm saying in a a very specific example that I only allude to in that particular article. A couple months ago, I was introduced to a man with whom I might philosophize, and I just said, "Let's, let's call the man John. And so I said, let's just have a chat, John. And this is what I typically do. I'll just have an ordinary conversation without any kind of expectations just to get a feel for him and for him to get a feel for me. What was very striking about this, <laughs> this, this I, I guess, monologue, really, was that was precisely that, that he, he was monologuing. He, be, he began really by telling me that he had all these things going on and it felt as if he was, I felt as though I was the therapist, right? I was put in the position of the therapist and he was the one who was the client or analysand and he was telling me three topics. Above all, he was suggesting that what really mattered to him is that he didn't feel understood or recognized. And I, could, I got the sense that this was a very well-grooved story. He told it over and over again. Over many years, I would say the man was probably based on the tone of his voice only, maybe in his mid-50s, early 60s. And it was just extraordinarily uncanny to me. And so when I asked him, uh, well, what, what would you like to know about me? since this is a, a, ostensibly a conversation. He said, well, the only thing I'd really like to know is whether or not you heard what I had to say. So that's what um, therapy would call mirroring. So I mirrored it back to him, given that's what <laughs> was going on in that particular tete-a-tete, but not without feeling a great sense of dis-ease about the whole thing. So it was a kind of click, a moment when things clicked. I saw this person was not alone. I've had conversations like this before, in the, or... I've had exchanges like this before in the past and I've wanted to see whether there's more to seeing these as particular signs of the state of culture today, at least among those who are, let's say, elites living in the East coast of the United States, but I think also in other places like San Francisco and beyond.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's an interesting insight actually. And, uh, you know, I would say, uh, definitely uh that you know people as you say they're looking at these what they think are depths right they're dwelling on uh neuro neurological phenomena which uh, you can there certainly are interesting uh uh, neurological phenomena and they're mistaking them for something uh well they're real to say that they're not real is not true but the claim that they have deep metaphysical significance right and and you know this is what uh, people like John Verveke talk about the meaning crisis when you know, Nietzsche and the Enlightenment overthrew the traditional gods uh, rather than uh, just dealing with that and moving on. An awful lot of people continue to be searching for surrogates and uh, various shallow forms of spirituality, as people call it, uh, you know, seem to be uh, uh, filling that space. And uh, the psychotherapeutic uh, uh, hobby uh, seems similar
1: yeah it, 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 I think but let's let's even investigate what what seems to be missing here. So those who have gotten very much involved in this hobby are missing a, a lot about what it is to to be involved in a good human life. so they're they're not cultivating the virtues that Aristotle would associate with friendship or what he called philia, that is caring for another person for his or her own sake. That's an extraordinarily Important feature of a good life, I would say, but nor are they involved in, let's say, volunteer activities or what Christians would call caritas, which is forms of charity, uh, ways of engaging with people who are less off than we are. That's another one that's been a part of the American tradition, at least during the nineteenth century, surely. And and most important for me, since I am a, a Zen Buddhist, uh, they're not or, as well as a philosopher. That kind of the loop that they're involved in is not enabling them to go beyond the circle of their own consciousness. So uh, a Zen Buddhist doesn't care too much about the content of mentation. That is, whatever comes to mind is whatever comes to mind. But the suggestion is that there actually are forms of life or ways of being that are beyond the contents of your thoughts and feelings. And if you particularly devote your life to looking at the contents of thoughts and feelings over and over again, then you're really missing, um, what would we say? You're, you're missing the forest for the trees.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, the other thing I liked a lot in your essay uh, is that you connected that perspective to narcissism. Yeah. And, and you know, there's it's been, been quite some time that, people have been pointing out that we are developing a culture of narcissism at an exceptionally high level and uh, you know this uh, this phenomena that you're talking about strikes me as uh, an almost pure form of narcissism you know that you know my my little internal thingies uh uh you know are, are more important than you know my relationships with my family or my friends or my community or uh, or doing good works or uh, one that I notice has fallen off tremendously uh, is conviviality—the idea of you know really having uh, deep, live, personal entertainment with friends rather than you know looking you know going out to some canned concert or uh, uh, or, or what have you. So yeah, I would I would love to hear your your thoughts on how uh, the culture of narcissism is uh, interacting with these phenomena.
1: Right. Um, I think it would be helpful to put in context the the, the therapeutic culture, and I'm still in the early stages of my investigation, so this is going to be freewheeling here. But let's consider what, let's say, Carl Polanyi writes in his book, The Great Transformation, as it pertains to the movement uh, over the course of capitalism from the countryside to the city. So we can't, we can't deny that urbanization has been a remarkable force at this moment in time as megacities have been created and as young people continue to flock to megacities for the purposes of career development and making their way in the world and such. So that's at least one strand in the argument. So you have deracinated individuals moving from a small town Wisconsin, where I grew up, to New York City. And it happens also in Denmark, where I've spoken with people over the years, as it does in England, as people are moving to London. I mean, the the fact that you have the self-possessive individual on his or her own in the so-called alienated modern landscape is already suggestive of someone who has broken ties to family and to local communities as part of the bargain for trying to make his or her way in the world. So that's one strand that can help us see how how narcissism could have arisen. But then I think we also have what Aristotle would have called friends of utility becoming more and more prominent today in keeping with that, that which I just said. That is, friends of utility are those who are only useful to you in that narrow sense, useful to you in a professional sense, useful to you insofar as it allows you to advance in the world. So I joke and say that LinkedIn, right, is the place where you'd find friendships of utility and nothing more, nothing less. So friendships are more and more not understood as the deep ties that bind us over the course of decades, but rather as the kinds of incidental relationships we have with a view to our getting on in the world, at least if we are kind of white collar professionals or knowledge workers in the Bay Area or in New York City. And then... David Brooks wrote. A, <laughs> I'm really citing articles for here for your for your listeners. But then David Brooks wrote a, a really nice piece in Atlantic a few months ago, and he's talking about the erosion of the of the of the family or the nuclear family, which he says was really only prominent from after World War II to the 1980s or so. So if you begin to actually look at any number of families today, you'll see that some of some people are incarcerated, to be sure. But other in other cases, you just have young individuals trying to aspire to be somebody and more or less thinking of family in the way that Rousseau would have thought about family, namely as those who are involved in kind of a voluntary association that no longer carries the kind of deep, longstanding obligations and duties. Uh, So you start to notice the ways in which narcissism could arose. I'm telling something like right now, a subtraction story. Take away the sorts of, of fundamental connections we have with others and see what you're left with. Well, you're left with someone who more and more is involved in beginning to, in a fairly neurotic way, look at or examine the contents of his or her own consciousness. And then I would argue that the workplace has also begun to reveal a lot of these marks as well. So it's only in recent years that we've heard talk about vulnerabilities being shared and and facilitation workshops being undertaken at various tech firms. So it's also being encouraged for one to be engaged in the kind of looping around inquiry into one's own states of consciousness. It's not surprising then, and I don't think I have all the strands of the story woven together yet, that you begin to see more and more narcissistic people emerging in this context.
0: Yeah, indeed. And you know... I'm involved with something called the game B movement, which is an attempt to build a more authentic, uh, way of being. And one of the things that we've talked about, and I think we put the date about 1925, uh, mm-hmm. is that the amount of personal investment we have, we have in, uh, family and face-to-face community has declined since 1925, more or less continuously. And what's taken its place has been the market and government. And both of those are uh, essentially uh, abstract, cold interfaces. uh, While the family and the face-to-face community are warm and complex and very high-dimensional, and that's just a very different way to, to live. And uh, part of our uh, prescription of the way forward is what we call proto bees, which is to develop uh, communities where we, that take good care of families because families are a basis of everything. When we let our families go to hell uh, starting in the uh World War II, but really accelerating in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, uh, you know, people now become fractionated and no longer connected in a matrix of, you know, biological and emotional obligation. And, you know, the way forward seems to us to be to rebuild communities such that the families at the base and then the face-to-face community uh, supports and helps the family create the next generation of humans who help make an even better community, which do an even better job of helping support the family. And, th- and that's, that's really what uh, what comes next should be about, not even more fractionation and more alienation of the, uh, you know, radically displaced individual.
1: I, I agree. It, what's funny is that what you're describing in some ways, tracks what Alistair McIntyre calls uh, revolutionary Aristotelianism, (laughs) which which might strike some of your listeners as a bit uh, amusing, because he's really just referring to more or less what you're talking about, face-to-face communities centered on the cultivation of moral intellectual virtues, whose point and purpose is uh, A, human flourishing, and B, the common good we share together. So it's just a small scale community you can find it in certain eco villages or in certain tension communities, at least in principle, if not in practice
0: yeah, and uh, it's one of the reasons I live in very remote virginia uh, yeah. you know the nearest grocery store is an hour's drive over three mountain ranges, yeah. uh, but we have an intact community here, real people who you can really rely upon uh you know and you can get really get to know over a period of years and you know i you know, i frankly can't can't even imagine being that uh Nomad that I used to be, right? Who uh, you know lived in this city for a while, in that city for a while. Yeah. Uh, that that per, that person was a, a strangely shallow person. Uh, you know, fortunately, I have an upbeat and optimistic personality, so I never, uh, you know, think I ever really suffered from it in the sense of feeling bad. But I think back at at it, it was you know, uh, it was wide. There were lots of experiences on offer, but it was only an inch deep. There wasn't any real substance to it.
1: Yeah. And I'd like to come back to something we were saying just a moment ago. And this is that what I also might be lacking is an understanding of of psychomoral development from, let's say, age zero to 18, just to put some arbitrary numbers on it. Time was that uh, I'm probably closer to your age than I am to <laughs> some of some of your listeners. I'm 41 years old when we still had chores to do when we were when we were children. Age 12 was not the age at which you become dexterous at the piano. Age 12 was the age at which you had some, you had a fair number of chores to do around the house. I didn't particularly love these, and nor am I going to sing their praises. But being able to be embedded in a household, in household oikos, the household economy, the, the way in which the household is maintained, is part of the cultivation of characters, Aristotle would say. So even in the 19th century, as as American families were much larger, we had a number of younger younger people obviously working on the farm. Was it hard work? To be sure. Uh, I'm sure it was quite painstaking work. But there was at least the intergenerational understanding of being able to fulfill obligations to others and the ability to actually cultivate certain salient virtues, such as generosity or patience or... Um, or even indeed conviviality. And so when you, begin to, when you begin to create a different kind of human being, that is the human being oriented toward being the worker who's going to be successful in the Bay Area or in New York City in the form of venture capitalism or perhaps in the guise of a startup, you're not actually getting the, a fundamental period of time the kind of human being that is born and bred to engage in acts of friendship and in community uh, engagements of the kind that we're describing. So more or less, uh, the suggestion here is that narcissism of the kind we're seeing is a residue arising out of a series of unacknowledged failures that have occurred behind the scenes.
0: Yeah, failures or moves. I mean, uh, you know, I would call them failures, but society itself might not, right? Uh, I mean, we seem to be very happy with uh, the breakdown of the, uh, you know, the, the traditional family. You know, people seem to feel at some one level they're liberated. So is that a failure? I would say it's a failure, but uh, broader society doesn't seem to think so. Uh which is, which is interesting. You know, Where does one get the perspective to to, to realize that having a, a society where you know 50% of kids are living in uh, single-parent households, which is not true quite yet for the whole country, but for some sub-communities, it's true. I mean, that just is nuts from my perspective, and yet the world seems to think that's fine and dandy.
1: I think we need to distinguish. I'm, I'm sympathetic to what you say. I think we need to distinguish between Uh, subjective polling and some more robust conceptions of living and faring well, or eudaimonia, the good life. If you, (laughs) so I'll give you one example. Uh, A number of people will get asked via uh, a Pew poll whether or not their work is fulfilling or some such. And it depends on the poll and some will say no and others say yes. But by my lights, this is a really poor question on the whole because I'm more or less skeptical of of the whole system of gainful employment that arises at the end of the 19th century and really picks up steam throughout the course of the 20th century. I provide this as one example just to illustrate the limitations of polling when you have people with the same level of consciousness, as Ken Wilber might say. So instead, I would suggest that, sure, people are, let's say, subjectively content with the status quo, only insofar as in a fundamental way they know no other. Right? I mean, the key to living today is, in fact, the, the proliferation of options in terms of a marketplace, to be sure. That's true. But the lack of genuine options as it pertains to how to live in a, in a broader sense. So we've ba- basically agreed that the modern liberal state is hegemonic, We've agreed that the market is allegedly autonomous. We have agreed that human beings are you know, are disencumbered or deracinated individuals pursuing their own forms of success and subjective forms of utility or happiness. I'm skeptical of the entire model, as I think you are when it comes to Game B as well. So polling is simply not going to do much, I think. When it comes to actually interrogating what the nature of good life is, because of the extent to which people have already, for generations on end, bought into the current systems and no basically no other.
0: Yeah, we call that in the game B context, game A malware. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, frankly, uh most of us were utterly saturated with it in our growings up, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I was, you know, I'm quite a bit older than you. I'll be 67 these, uh, uh, this year. And so I still had the traditional, uh, working class, fairly solid family upbringing, which, uh, you know, did me well, but I was also saturated in TV and, you know, uh, one of those guys, one of those, uh, network TV, uh, era, uh, people where, uh, you know, this sort of dream world was projected into our brains two or three hours a day and, uh, uh, you know, it, and it produced a different kind of market being a you know, program to work hard so you can buy a fancy car and pick up chicks. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was psychologically well informed, though not as psychologically well informed as uh, current Internet advertising. And it, But it knew how to press our buttons and it knew how to build this mass man. And uh, unfortunately, that malware is just one variety of it. The current kind, I don't understand as well since I did not come up in that world, Uh, but this world that is no longer mass, right? I remember, you know, people, you know, younger people, even folks your age probably have a hard time remembering a world when there were basically four, three TV networks, right? Mm -hmm. And on any given night, seventy percent of American families were tuned to one of the three. Uh, you know, now we have uh, an even more interesting phenomena of you know, a crazed ubiquity of choice. Roll your own reality, essentially. But uh, unfortunately, as we've both been talking about, and certainly Game B underlines, and I believe your work does too, uh, all the. Energy there is towards fragmentation and individuals not in the context of the social, and you know that may be damn close to the to the root of the problem.
1: Yes, and I, I and, and I, I do think that if you could uh, administer a truth certain to a number of people who uh, exhibit certain narcissistic tendencies, and you began to engage them in a philosophical conversation of the kind that I tend to have daily, such that they would play the role of the answer and i would play the role of the questioner i think it wouldn't be hard to see something more more basic at play here That's something we haven't touched upon yet and that would be something like the following i actually am feeling disease in the buddhist sense some sense of life being rather off or disconcerning or not quite what it's supposed to be or as i like to I like to gloss <laughs> the pali term dukkha meaning uh, things aren't spot on, really. So that's what I think the person would, would say as much. Now, the person wouldn't confess as much. The person would actually be involved in speaking the truth. I think the other important point the person would make is effectively this. I'm I'm actually quite lonely, existentially so. If you could begin from that starting point, namely, I'm actually discontent notwithstanding the ways in which I proclaim in the public that I am content and I'm actually quite lonely or lonesome, notwithstanding the fact that I appear for all intents and purposes among my cohort to be gregarious and otherwise, then you can begin to get some purchase on how that person might be different and how collective life might be different.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's correct. I mean, certainly we know from even from tracking polls that You know, loneliness is perceived loneliness is definitely on the upswing. Mm-hmm. And the number of actual deep friendships that people have, a surprising number of people now have zero, which is to my mind uh, staggering and disastrous, right? Uh, people you know, being a friend that you could have a truly deep conversation about something of great sensitivity. Right. Uh, I like the old saying, you know, a friend will help you move. A good friend will help you move a body. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so how many good friends do you have? I got about 10. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think I'm damn, I'm damn lucky to have that many. Right. Uh, but there are people who have zero. and That would have to be a very strange way to live. And then another uh, another you know, form of what you're talking about that does come through from the polling is the famous question. Are we on the is the country on the right track or the wrong track? Mm-hmm. I just pulled it up. Uh, the consensus on real clear politics. And this has been uh, consistent for years. It's about 65% of people believe the country is on the wrong track. And, and that's, you know, kind of a reification of a lot of these things. There's Deep down inside, people know this ain't the right way to live. This is not the right way to raise children. You go to a restaurant, you see parents shutting the children up by handing them an iPod, you know, when they're Mm -hmm. an iPad, when they're, you know, five years old. You go, what the hell? Uh, You know, this is an opportunity to socialize children, to bring them into the conversation, uh, to show them how to live. And instead, the you know the parents want to uh, chat about their own little affairs, and they want to shut the kid up by sticking their face in a screen. Uh, you know, at some level, people know this is wrong, even if they can't articulate it.
1: I agree. And what could also be said is that you can we can now provide a charitable interpretation of why a fair number of people, let's say in the East Coast, tend to go to therapy. That is because if they don't have close friendships or what Aristotle called friendships of virtue, if they don't have the kinds of relationships with their parents and siblings that enable them to talk about matters of great importance. If they are living in Brooklyn or in Oakland, uh, and if they are only working in ways that allow them to progress in their careers, then there are these big gaps. Uh, and those big gaps are the ones being filled by um, you know, the, the, the kind of purveyors of surrogacy, that is, those who are able to be substitutes for what culture often or a sane culture would provide. So a sane culture wouldn't need stopgap measures in the form of a professional class of people we call therapists.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting. It would be actually, I don't know where I would get the data, but uh, do a uh, calculation uh, of therapists per capita by county or something. Probably the labor department statistics might actually yeah. have at least some rough and crude things and see what that shows. Sure, uh, I bet that would be interesting. And then correlate it with things like uh, population density, number of people who are uh, still working the land, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm going to do that just for fun.
1: I, I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think you have the poet Wendell Berry living in rural Kentucky, uh, going once weekly to um, a therapist nearby. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, I, I don't think so. Yeah, Wendell Berry. I mean, he's an amazing exemplar. He actually was the commencement speaker when my wife uh, graduated from college at a small liberal arts college in Kentucky, and we got the chance to chat with him afterwards. Quite well, a, quite a fine human being. And that yeah. was a zillion years ago.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's lovely.
0: So I've heard. It's interesting. So, what do we do? God damn it! You know, the proto, the game B answer is to literally start building on the ground communities that exemplify uh, some of these ideas. But of course, at least in the short run, they don't really scale. If we did a great job, maybe we can build a hundred of them in the next ten years, and uh, that would be home for maybe fifteen thousand people. Uh, that, of course, is uh, like spitting in the ocean. Uh, what ideas do you have uh, to you know help people live more authentic, uh, more grounded, more real, uh, just better lives the good life? how can we do that at scale
1: yeah i don't I, I'm, I don't have great proposals here, but I have a starting point so the this, this starting point would be a joke it would be never let a good crisis go to waste so I think you would need to begin with a certain kind of collective crisis um, you find in a number of different traditions that, and I found in my own time of philosophizing with individuals, that it's usually at a point at which a current way of life no longer makes sense. And that's understood very intuitively, very investorly, Then you have the beginning of a new possibility. So if you could begin to imagine a number of people who have been living according to the dictates of certain narcissistic narcissistic tendencies, and more and more of them aren't just living through COVID, but something, uh, dare I say, um, more existentially potent than COVID, then you have the beginning of the possibility of what I call a collective existential opening. I think that's the first step. You really can't pull people out of systems as they are and expect that they will be ready because they're not, they're not actually ripe for it. You don't just, for example, have someone come and sit at a Sashin, which is a Zen Buddhist intensive meditation retreat for seven days. It's a very bad idea. You only begin with someone who has been, as Zen Buddhists would say, open to the great matter of life and death. So this is the first part. There's, you know, the, the, the joke might be no scale without collective existential opening,
0: <laughs> so yeah well, we certainly we have that in the game b world, what we say is that uh that we need ears to hear, and our hypothesis is the current accelerated meta crises of twenty twenty have at least uh, increased the number of year, ears to hear by a factor of ten x as opposed to uh january first and uh you know we do intend to take advantage of that and i I think that's uh, that's a good insight
1: yeah, so the second point I would make is that there. Uh, in keeping with what you were just uh, pointing to is there's a, is that there's a kairos or timing issue. I've noticed that people only tend to open up at a particular moment. And the, the aperture, so to speak is only open so long before they tend to return to the ways that they had been living. So it's not just that you need to have, as Jesus said, ears to hear. You also need for people to be, um, encountered right at the point at which things don't make sense to them. Socrates calls it opera, right? The sense of confusion, sense of being turned about. If you can get those right, then you can have the beginning of a genuine movement or a genuine shift in consciousness.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's right. And, you know, one, you know, just thinking about this out loud as you're talking, yeah. uh, uh, one that uh, strikes me as where the rubber re- meets the road for millions of people is the uh, amazingly chaotic state of public school education right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is uh, kind of like business travel. Uh, it strikes me that business travel will never return anything like it. Used to be, I mean, the the opportunity to do it a different way. People realized, do oh, I really need to spend, uh, you know, three thousand dollars to go out to California for two days for one meeting? Hell no, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this crisis of public school education is making clear to people uh, that the whole idea of the current public school education is a fairly much a nightmare of uh, large proportions and. Uh, opening around a better way to raise your children, including, uh, you know, organic education built right into the way of life, uh, may be an opening to millions of people right now who really are in crisis. And and even the ones that don't yet realize they're in crisis are going to realize it in a year when they realize that most of their kids didn't learn jack shit in the last 12 months, at least not, uh, uh, you know, not what they thought they were supposed to learn.
1: It's a good point of leverage. I've... Uh, As you've already gathered, I've been interested in our notions of work, because I think that's another very low-hanging fruit. So COVID certainly has brought mass unemployment to millions of Americans. Now, a number of them are receiving unemployment benefits right now, and a number of them will be funneled back into the system. But it doesn't have to be that way. Moreover, a number of people are learning new neologisms, such as work from home or working remotely. Uh, for a while, that's go- their attention is going to be sequestered. They'll learn that they don't have to live in the Bay Area. they can live in Denver or they can live somewhere in the country. so they're 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 starting to inquire, but the inquiry hasn't gone very deep yet. So if it were possible actually to show that the ways we have of working are fundamentally untenable, I would argue, then we also have another leverage point because our gainful employment system, is already hooked up to our public, our, our, our public education system, right? As, as it is, and as it's linked up to other systems too. So you really just need to, to put pressure on one system so that through a level of thoughtfulness, you, you can begin to show people that actually these are concatenated. They're, they're linked to each other. Right? So a so number of parents, for example, I hear from are, are, are annoyed by the fact that they're tired of having Johnny or Susie at home. Because they're it's a dual income household. And so then now they need to do babysitting. And as you well know, public schooling, apart from other things, is a, is a way of, of having babysitting for eight hours a day or so. So they're starting to feel the pinch, but they haven't really analyzed yet the fact that it's also the gainful employment system of which they have been willing participants that's allowing them to actually not acknowledge the extent to which they're feeling the pinch.
0: Yep. And and I think the other key part which take the next step from that is most people can't synthesize a solution, but they but if they see one, they can recognize it. Right. Uh, you know, for instance, in our game B proto B concept, uh, the idea of babysitting is actually fully organic, right? It's part of the society. Uh, and one of the areas that we, I've been researching in particular, uh, for ideas for proto bees are the Israeli kibbutz, right? In the Israeli kibbutz, there, there was no arrangement you had to make for daycare. It was built into the social operating system that there were a a group of folks whose job it was to take care of kids while their parents did other things, whether it was arts or make love or uh, what have you. And, uh, there was no hassle; didn't cost anything, uh, and it was just part of the social operating system. Now, there's some other parts of how the kibbutz operated that I would disagree with, but I thought that was uh, something that would very much resonate, with, particularly with young millennial parents today. Uh, is that uh, you know the the nightmarish difficulty of. Uh, Uh, having your kids watched over by the whole community, basically, which no longer exists, uh, would be a tremendous liberating phenomena for the person themselves and would be amazingly good for the children as well. And so uh, if we could build a social operating system, even at a small scale, and be able to show people, come visit, see how the kids are just there, are essentially supervised by all the adults together. uh, And uh, there are a few professionals who make sure things don't spin out of control. uh, But you don't have to uh, you know, spend uh, 30% of your income on, uh, on, on childcare. That's nuts. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then, which then re- allows you not to have to have such an intense pursuit of the almighty dollar. And, and but I think showing is going to be uh, real important. Yes.
1: And on, on, on the other end of, of, of life, the, the hope would be that we begin to examine what it is to die and to die the beautiful death. For if nothing else, in this country we have, we have no sense of what it is to actually die a beautiful death, to die well. So in the kind of community you're describing, presumably there would also be various understandings and ritualistic practices that would enable us to actually see that, yes, this is uh, that so-and-so is coming to the end of his life. Let us find ways of honoring that end and let us not cling to that one let us not use massive amounts of resources to ensure that this one continues to live a great greater and greater impoverished last phase of life because we can't bear the possibility that this one is going to go
0: yeah, yeah, that's uh, exactly right. Uh, I did happen to stumble across your essay today on yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the uncomfortable truths about the aged in modern society, and if someone is getting at the lower end of aged, it definitely resonates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, and our society is so fucked up on the topic of death. We don't want to talk about it, right? No. And uh, and you know this horrendous extension of life and I will say I'll get my home family credit we're all goddamn fatalists when the time comes pull the fucking plug we all have uh, you know advanced directives etc uh, we actually executed it with respect to my father after he had a weird accident uh, at the age of 80 and uh, you know, the whole family got around and basically kept him doped up and told jokes for two days, and then he was gone. Right, uh, and uh, and we did it with a will, and we had a good time about it. We still talk about how what a good time it was. Was as our father died. Right, yeah. and, uh, uh, and but you know that's unusual in our society. He could have easily been stuck on a ventilator for years, certainly yeah. for months. What the hell, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, and we just do not we don't think clearly about this. Uh, in fact, one of my uh, uh, not entirely joking uh, ideas, but a little you know, intentionally over the top, is that the Social Security Administration ought to authorize anybody 75 or over to throw a going away party for themselves uh, and spend $25,000 doing so, uh, provided that at midnight they take the black pill. Hmm. Well,
1: <laughs> it's half joking. Well, there's a beautiful story, uh, I, as I told you, I live in the, the, the Southwest in Albuquerque, about Edward Abbey. Edward Abbey uh, was a staunch critic of industrial capitalism, uh, and of monkey the,
0: wrench gang. Yeah, yeah the monkey
1: wrench gang. I
0: read that book a long time ago. Yeah, yeah
1: it's a wild, it's a wild book. Yeah, uh, as well as Desert Solitaire, which uh, which your listeners are probably more familiar with. In any case, when he was terminally ill, he was in the hospital. And this was the last place he really wanted to be. He was a very cantankerous fellow, very risable fellow. And, and so his friends, uh, in true Edward Abbey's spirit, came to the hospital and sprung him from the hospital and took him to some unmarked location out in the desert where he would have found it quite beautiful. And there he died and they celebrated his death
0: excellent i hope hope some of my friends will do that if and when i need it though hopefully i'll have the uh the will and the foresight to do it myself
1: (laughs) no he probably wasn't quite as as, quite as responsible as you and all that
0: on the other hand one of the problems is of course is if you let it go too far particularly with dementia uh you know you no longer have the capability uh and uh, that's why we have to confront this stuff and be honest about it right uh as i kid my daughter, I say, well, if I can't answer the question, what's the square root of 169, take me out back and shoot me, right? And uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, and I saw... I sort of mean it, right? Though we Obviously, we need, we need a cleaner and better way to do it. Uh, let me throw out a billion-dollar opportunity for any of you young entrepreneurs out there. Kevorkian clinics, right? Uh, you're going to have to spend the first 10 years in uh, uh, litigation and politics, but eventually uh, it'll be one of the biggest uh, businesses in America where people can go away with style and with their friends around and throwing the black pill party and the whole deal. Uh, death as a service, not a bad idea. And the
1: reason I brought the topic up in keeping with how to raise children is that in the philosophical tradition, these have all been questions of the good life. And so I, I just look around for the areas in modern life where we are not yet open to examining things. And in virtue of not yet being open to examining them, it turns out that we are held fast by our delusions and by our unthoughtfulnesses. So this is why it's, it's so remarkable to me that people will raise children so that they can become workers and consumers and at, at the, at the, uh, on the back end, take care of their grandparents in such a way that suggests that they couldn't possibly let go of someone who is deteriorating in myriad ways. We can't let go because we have no idea what a good life was. We only know how to extend uh, you know, what one philosopher calls bare life. Mm. Mm
0: -hmm. And of course, unfortunately in the United States, there's awful, also just a lot of superstition, you know, around things like Christianity, uh, that, Oh, you know, every life is sacred. We have to fight for every minute of every life, you know, that suicide is a mortal sin. And so we're also polluted with a lot of that kind of thinking.
1: Mm. Well, the, I mean, I think what's, I think you're probably a, a card-carrying secularist, but what, what, what can be said about, about secularism is that it actually imports a lot of the assumptions from Christianity without actually owning up to those assumptions. So it's certainly, certainly possible they have a number of secular people who can't let go of their grandparents, but they have no idea why they can't let go of their grandparents
0: yeah and I think it, you know there's obviously our whole tradition is deeply uh, infiltrated by the uh, by two threat you know, as they say Jerusalem and Athens right uh, mm-hmm. uh, Pla- uh, Plato and uh, uh, Judeo Christianity and both of them have are, are are foundational to who we are, and both of them have some good points, and both of them have some bad points. If you ever want to read a nightmare, read Plato's Republic, right? Uh, personally, I love Socrates, but uh, in that one, not so much, right? Uh, where essentially he's uh, uh, describing something not too far from uh, the Chinese uh, panopticon as uh, as the way to run a society.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and by contrast, there. Socrates of what are referred to as the early Socratic dialogues, I find in in my own idealization to be someone who is really neat and appropriate for our time, and I think John Ravicki is interested in Socrates as well. I mean to say that here is someone who is open to inquiring with someone, whether that person be a statesman or a craftsman, about fundamental matters of existence without claiming that he knows what wisdom is or that the way he knows what knowledge is, he knows what piety is or he knows what virtue is or, or what have you. They go on together, possibly with a view to converging on mutual understanding, but often with, with, with a view to actually coming into their state of confusion together. I, 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 so if Socrates were alive today, he'd be continually pointing to the ways in which we, we are obfuscatory when it comes to our own sorts of confusions, we keep masking our basic confusions from ourselves. So that would be another way of coming back to the, the point you're asking about how, how, how to change things. So this is a third point that is you, you start to help people to unmask the ways in which they are involved in fundamental forms of misunderstanding.
0: Yep, I think that's, uh, that's bang on. Well, I'm going to end it right there. I think we've gone a little over our normal time on these Currents episodes, but this conversation was so interesting and rich. Uh, I think it was great. So great to have you on, Andrew.
1: Thanks very much, Jim.
0: Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at ModernSpaceMusic.com.